Hey, 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 welcome or welcome back to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. This is the show where we make you better at doing hard stuff. Today on the program, I have Jimmy Hunt, who is a mental health change maker, a speaker, an author, and an adventure seeker. Jimmy is great conversationalist as well. And today we talk through all things about self-awareness, changing how we show up as a person. We talk about how we should be referring to mental health as mental fitness, why that's important and how that changes the paradigm about how we deal with our own mental health. Uh, We talk about love and we talk about ego as well. And one thing that I just wanted to bring up before we, we jump into things is is dropping ego and I've been trying to I've been trying to drop ego drop my own ego over the last couple of years and I'm, I'm much better at letting it go than I used to be but actually I show up for this conversation looking back in it on it in hindsight I show up for this conversation with a bit of ego actually and just wanting to jump in and start asking heavy questions straight away where actually I should have I should have built into the conversation a little bit more and should have should have romanced Jimmy a little bit more than what we did to begin with. Thankfully, he just came out with some great answers straight off the bat and it's a fantastic chat, but I just wanted to acknowledge that actually looking back that I did have some ego for the first part of the conversation that was wrapped up in it, which is is interesting considering what we talked about later on. But that's enough of the that ramble. Thank you guys so much for getting uncomfortable with Jimmy and I today. Jimmy Hunt, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast, mate. It's, uh, it's good to have you here today. Thank you very much. Jimmy... You've just finished up with the, uh, it's the world's biggest water slide. What was the hardest part about putting that on this time? So for reference for your listeners, I have the Guinness World Record for the world's longest water slide. It's 601.4 meters long. And why I call it the biggest water slide in the world is one, it's the longest, but two, it also has the biggest vertical drop. It drops 110 meters over 600. You had about I think the fastest we got this year was about 53 k's an hour down that. It's a hell of a lot of fun. It's completely inflatable, so you can move it anywhere and do anything. And you asked the question, what's the hardest thing? Well, for me, this the hardest thing was actually saying goodbye to it this year. This is the, the last time I'm running the event. And so this behemoth has been a big part of my life and an emotional part of my life, good and bad. And I wrote an Instagram post about why it's the last time. And to paraphrase that real quick for you is that it's the last time because I am not a water slide operator. That's not my job. I am a mental health change maker. My job is to make change in the way people think and deal about mental health. And the first time I did the water slide, it generated literally tens of millions of dollars worth of media coverage. It was, had the subject of two documentaries for the Travel Channel. I had nine minutes on the Today Show in America live. It was in the Huffington Post, the Daily Mail, blah, 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 everything. And every single one of those platforms allowed me to talk about mental health and mental fitness and allowed me to help people. And then when you do something the next time, not so many people give a shit. If you do it the next time, then even less people give a shit. If you do it one more time, 
then basically the New Zealand Herald turns up and that's it. And so it no longer has given me the platform to be able to talk about mental health. And then the other side, which is the actual real hard part about it, is the biggest water slide in the world. And logistically, it is hard, hard work. It is hard work to put it up. It is hard work to pack it away. It is hard work to run an event. Um, economically, it's not really, it's not great. <laughs> and so basically, economically, it doesn't make fantastic sense, but it fails its number one remit, which is to give me a platform to talk about mental health. And so a woman posted an interesting insight on my Instagram, which was, it's really brave to pull the plug on something that people want and like when it's not fulfilling your goals or needs. And I was like, thank you. Like it is. See, I mean, we, we sold out this event in 23 hours. We had a wait list of a thousand people wanting tickets. And so for me to do the event again, I could probably, I could do it again. Right. I could, I could sell more tickets. I could, I could run the event again, but because it fails my biggest number one goal, which is to give me a platform, then I got to pull it. And so pulling something that is one rad as hell um, to a lot of people want to do is actually probably the hardest thing. And so, yeah, that's the end of it. Yeah. And do you feel kind of a, like a sense of loss, not uh, going to do that again? Yeah, I felt like a sense, absolutely. Like, it's sad. I mean, it is. It's, it's actually, it is kind of loss. It's also massive relief when you know that you don't have to do that again. You're like, thank God I don't have to go to all that effort anymore. And I think the most annoying part about it is the constant questions of what's next. Like, a thousand people have asked me what now and it's one of those things like my first sort of I, I've been doing dumb stuff my entire life and then my first very public crazy thing was I swam a lilo the entire length of the Waikato River and then when, once people sort of I'd finished that people were like oh well, what's next what's next are you gonna lilo the Amazon no no I don't I don't want to lilo the Amazon I'll just go you know do something else and then i came up with the idea for the big world's biggest water slide and so i made that happen and then what's next what's bigger and that's definitely something that i've learned over the last few years is that i had such expectations of myself and other people that i always had to do a bigger and better thing and now i finally become comfortable in my own skin as like well if i never do anything again i'm still good as a human and if I do something, if I do something that's not as like world changing as the world's biggest water slide, I'm still okay as a human. I'm still okay looking at me as, a, as, as who I am as a person. I am enough. And that, that's a big thing. And I think that's a, that's a massively important point that you make there with it is that so often we're kind of chasing the next thing, whether that's the promotion at work or whether it's a degree or whether it's whatever achievement it is, a slightly better car that we think I'll be happy when, or I'll be, be fulfilled when I have this next shiny new thing. Have you, um, have you read my book? I have, I have. Oh, well, I've read your second book, how to live more awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in that is exactly what you're talking about. 
In the year 2013, I built the world's biggest water slide. I released a best-selling book. I opened TEDx Auckland in front of 2,500 people. I fronted a national ad campaign for the biggest company in the country. I was a finalist for New Zealand Innovator of the Year for the slide design. And I was a finalist for New Zealander of the Year for my mental health work. And at the end of 2013, I was fucking sad. I hated that year. I was real disappointed because the water slide didn't get enough views, didn't raise enough money. The best-selling book is a best-selling book in New Zealand. That's three and a half thousand copies. That's nothing. The TED Talk didn't get enough views. The product sucked and died after six months, and I did not win Innovator of the Year or New Zealander of the Year. All of those things sucked. All of those things made me sad. And so that's when I realized that basically all of these goals and dreams that I had that I had now achieved and whether it's big crazy ones like that, or it's simply a promotion or a new girlfriend or a new car or winning the rugby championship, what it, you know, whatever it is, none of those things will bring you lasting happiness. They may bring you brief little bits of happiness, but they will not give you lasting happiness. And so when you realize that the answer to happiness is not in external goals, then there's really only one place left to look and that's internal. And then when you start going inside, it's a scary as hell thing to do. But you know, once you start dealing with all of those things inside, all of those things that make you feel uncomfortable, all of the insecurities, all of the traits that you don't want anymore, once you start taking those apart and actually working on them and actually changing them, then you start going, oh, if I don't do this, I'm still happy. If I don't achieve this, I'm still happy. If I'm on my own, I'm still happy. And then what's even crazier is that once you understand, once you get to a place where you're okay if you never do another water slide or never do another thing or never achieve another goal, once you're okay with that, then what happens is you find a better partner, you get a promotion, you come up with better ideas and you do bigger and better things, which is just so counterintuitive, yet it is the only way it works. And yet we try to do the external before the internal. We do. Again, you made a great point about that doing the internal stuff is probably the most uncomfortable thing that you can do is to start to explore and look in those dark places of yourself and ask yourself some hard questions. And I remember when I started doing it, the questions, like looking back on it now, the questions that I was asking myself weren't that deep and they weren't that hard, but I struggled with them because I hadn't really done it before. And then I started getting answers that I wasn't proud of and and it would make me stop for a while because I couldn't manage it. It was easier to kind of keep wrapped up in, in being busy at life and not ask myself those those questions. And then like, but over time com coming back to it, I got slightly better and slightly better. And there's still questions that I ask myself now that make me uncomfortable as well. But I know that that's kind of where, that's where the, the exciting stuff and that's where the, the growth lies. So say at the end of 2013, when you realized, hey, I'm unhappy after achieving all this external stuff, how did you begin to get into that real deep internal work? Well, I mean, I guess 
the, no, the number one thing is awareness, right? Self-awareness. You have to understand. Like, so before, before that point, I didn't realize that there was a problem. I thought that everything was okay and I was just living a life. And it was after that that I realized that, there, oh, shit, there is a problem and I need to do something about it. And so, yeah, it, like it, the thing with internal work is that it can be done in many, many ways. But, you know, here's one of the things that, you know, since we're talking about uncomfortable, the most uncomfortable thing for a first world modern day human is silence. We are never, ever silent we are forever trying to have some input into our brains in order to have us not be alone with our own thoughts and so right now you have people driving in a car who can't drive drive in a car without listening to your podcast they can't drive silently the, you you know you've got people listening to this podcast you're at the beach because they can't just sit and look at the surf and so we're forever filling our heads with podcasts, with music, with other people, with screens, you know, all of that. And so the first thing about getting uncomfortable is being the observer of your own thoughts. It's like, what are my thoughts and why am I having them? And the number one way to be able to learn to observe your own thoughts is through meditation. And most people think meditation is just trying to quiet the brain. And that's not the case. The number one goal of your meditation is to be the observer of your thoughts. And so, and realize that you are not your thoughts. That's the real big crazy thing that people don't quite understand as well. You are not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts. Because especially when you're in a bad mental health place, your thoughts are crazy and you are not your thoughts. And so the first thing I did was sit there and be quiet for a while and see what was coming up. And, you know, just being quiet is the first way to kind of understand your problems as well. What bubbles up first? And then when you understand your problem, then you can go through the process of trying to deal with them. Mm. What, uh, what came up for you when you started to get quiet? <laughs> Everything. I got, I got a lot of problems, like, uh, <laughs> like, like, like most people. And a lot of my problems come from fear. Um, like most people's. I mean, one of the first thing that comes to mind right now is there's a quote that says basically, you know, zero to 18, life fucks you up. And then 18 plus, your job to fix it. And I sat down a couple of Christmases ago and said to my parents, you fucked me up. And my parents are some of the most lovely, caring, helpful people on the planet who during my childhood gave me everything that I could possibly need. They told me that I could be anything. They encouraged me and they gave me everything to, to literally, like I played a lot of sports and stuff, like to win the US Open, like to win Wimbledon. Like these were things that I was going to achieve because they were helping me and they gave me all of the support. And I, and I told them that they fucked me up by telling me that I could be anything and I could be the best in the world at it. When like the truth is my, my talent and skill set was not up to that. So I've spent my entire life feeling like I could be the best in the absolute world at something and therefore failing every day at it. And I never thought that I was good enough, no matter what I did. So like I explained before, you know, my water slide wasn't good enough. My book wasn't good enough. My talk wasn't good enough. 
like nothing was good enough. And so, you know, that, even though it came from the best intentions on the planet, that messed me up. And, you know, that's something I realized and then had to, had to deal with. There's a lot worse ways you could get messed up than, than that. No, so, and this is something that has to be really, really paramount in people's minds. Your suffering is your suffering. Your trauma is your trauma and it is equal to anybody else's. You see, like I just gave you a small example of like a privileged upbringing that messed mm-hmm. me up. Whereas we can, we can get a whole bunch of stories of like horrific trauma and that messes people up. But what's interesting is that my, what would be termed far less traumatic upbringing still led me to be suicidal. And so we, no matter what your upbringing is, no matter what your trauma is, you do not, you cannot discount it. It is equally detrimental to you and needs to be dealt with. And so that was part of what was heaped on to my problem, which was, I was like, you're such a bitch because your problems aren't anywhere near as big as anyone else's. That's what I felt all the time. And so I discounted my own, like just sort it out. Just, you're not that bad. Just deal with it. And so it wasn't until I addressed my problems and started deal with, dealing with them properly that I started to see a change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like everyone around you goes through, has, has problems and has challenges and is, is fucked up in some way. And it's not until you, it's not until you start talking to people and start asking the questions that are slightly deeper than what's the weather like and, and how did the, how do you reckon the All Blacks are going to go this year? You actually start to understand that everyone else around you is fucked up in some way as well. And that you're not, yeah, you're, you're prob- the problems that you have unique, but not the fact that you have problems and no one else does. No, your problems aren't unique either. There are, there are millions of people feeling like they aren't good enough, which was you know, one of mine. You know, mm. there are millions and millions of people. And that's, that's the annoying thing is that we feel like our problems are so unique and we have to deal with them ourselves when the truth is our problems are, aren't unique and we can go and get help from people who have already solved those problems and have found great ways to deal with them. And yet, because we try and keep them to ourselves, we don't find those solutions. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe a better way of putting it, they're not unique, but contextual. They're happening to, happening to you in a, in a context. Like it's not your fault fault that you have ended up where you are with the problems that you have but it is your responsibility to do something yeah that's one of my it's one of my favorite quotes your trauma is probably not your fault but your healing is 100 percent your responsibility and i even repeat that when i say it like your trauma is not your fault shit happens people have done stuff to you it's probably not your fault but your healing is a hundred percent your responsibility and no one else's. And that sounds really, really harsh, but like you're not even statistically likely to get an apology from someone who has caused you trauma, let alone have them heal that trauma for you. And so when you start understanding radical ownership and that it is your complete responsibility for your own current position in the mental health spectrum, then you can start making changes and only then after you've taken that ownership. Yeah. Which is massively challenging. You write a little bit about how you've done it um, or you write about how you've done it in your, in your book in terms of 
one one of the things that I really enjoyed with it was when you you felt kind of negative energy or or you had that that awareness of I have a trigger or or something to do something that I an action that I don't want to take actually just telling it to fuck off yeah yeah well I mean so uh, with some context on that basically I'll give you a real simple example like my entire life I have been what some people would call witty quick-witted and the problem with that is like you know it's just taking the piss right I'm uh, something happens boom I've got a quick reply to it but what's what's not good about that is those replies you know taking the piss isn't inherently nice right it isn't it isn't like it is it's, it's a teasing or it's not good and so I wanted to change that but it's something that I've done my entire life it was just who I am and it wasn't the worst thing in the world but I wanted to change it. And so I came up with this little three-step process, which was this. One, every time I did it, I was aware of it. Because if you're not aware of it, you can't change it. And so I was like, oh, I've done it again. Then the second thing I do was take radical ownership of that. And part of that is saying, sorry, going, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I'm very sorry. And then step three is what you just said, which was telling it to fuck off. And so what I would do is take like a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds, and I would close my eyes and I would look internally at that trait, at that, I I looked at it like a ball of energy. Like it's in me, but it isn't me. I'm an observer of it. So it's in me, but it doesn't have to be me. So I look at it and I would go, I do not choose you. And if you're not going to choose it, then I need to replace it with something. So I say, I do not choose you. I choose love instead. And so what's interesting about this is that I I started putting this into practice and over the first couple of weeks, nothing changed at all, nothing at all. And then over the the subsequent weeks, I started seeing small changes. I started doing it less. And then after a couple of months, I just wasn't doing it at all. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a genius. I've come up with this amazing new technique. And then I was like, oh shit, actually, no, turns out it's a thing called neuroplasticity. And basically neuroplasticity is that your brain is malleable. Your brain is a muscle, just like any other muscle in your body. And if you want to change it, you just have to train it. And you have to train it by sending different neurons down different neural pathways. And the stronger they get, the more they become your default. And then weaker the other ones get, the more they fall off. And so that's all I'd been doing is changing my brain waves my neural pathways this insane thing that we we didn't really understand a couple of decades ago but now we go right if you want to change something in your brain you can do it but you just have to work it out you just have to train it like you would any other muscle in your body and you'll get those results exactly and like a an example that i use in regards to neuroplasticity with people that i work with is are you you right-handed jimmy or left-handed I'm left-handed. You're left-handed, sweet. So you brush your teeth with your left hand, I'm assuming. And you can probably do that without thinking because that neural pathway is just so well developed that it just, it sends off those signals and tells your arm to work like that. If I ask you to brush your teeth with your right hand, you've got exactly the same muscles. You've got the anatomy is exactly the same in that right arm. So you should be able to if you're not thinking about neuroplasticity, you should be able to do it exactly the same. But because you haven't trained that neural pathway to do that task, you're stabbing yourself in the gums, you've got to really concentrate on it so that you uh, get those bits of food out of the teeth. And 
all it is, is is that training that if you spent a couple of months doing brushing your teeth with your opposite hand, you would start, that it'd start to become automatic for you again. Yeah. And, that, and this is the same as that. Anything that we want in our life, if we want more patience, if we want more perspective, if we want more ideas, we, we just think we can magically get them. You know, reading a quote doesn't get you there. Like you've, you've got to actually just work at it and train it like any other muscle. Like James Altcher talks about training the idea muscle. It's like, how, you know, what? It's like, yeah, he writes down 10 ideas every day. And there might be bad ideas, whatever, but all he's doing is training, training that idea muscle. You want to have better perspective on something? You've got to train it. Start real small, like, and, and then grow it and grow it and grow it. You want more patience? Same thing. This is why I'm, I'm launching a campaign shortly about mental fitness and, and rebranding mental health to mental fitness. Because one of the fundamental misunderstandings that we as humans have about mental health is that it's fundamentally, it works fundamentally differently to physical health. And it doesn't. And so we don't, like, if we wanted to get a six-pack, we know what to do, right? We just start going to the gym. We start eating well. We hire a personal trainer. We Google it, blah, blah, blah. And yet if I, if I said, you know, you should get more patience, you'd be like, oh, no, I don't have patience. I've never had patience. I've got no idea how to get it. You're like, oh, we just, we just fundamentally don't, don't understand it the same. And so with the rebranding to mental fitness, my hope is to try and achieve a change in people's perspective on it so that they're like, oh, so it's fitness. It's like a continuum and like, I've got to get fitter by doing, by training. You're like, yes, yes, you do. I really like that rebrand idea. Um, I think like it, it resonates with me because like I was talking to you about before we started recording, I'm a, I'm a Kiwi guy that grew up in the eighties and the nineties. And so I, I understand the physical reasonably well. So I think that there's going to be hopefully a concept that a lot of Kiwis can, can understand a little bit better is than kind of how mental health is pictured at the moment from a, from a really fixed place. But you, you talk about a continuum of fitness or a continuum of health. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So basically in a modern first world country, we treat something like mental health, like an on-off switch. And basically they, you get classed as mentally ill or mentally well. You know, you're depressed or you're not depressed. You're anxious or you're not anxious. And so, you know, that's a, that's a very old and dangerous paradigm to have. And it just simply doesn't work like. Basically, my, uh, my model is the mental health continuum. It runs from zero being dead to 100 being godlike enlightenment. And we are all somewhere on that continuum. Every single one of us is somewhere on the mental health continuum. The dictionary definition of depression is, is spending an extended period of time with low mental health. And so if we call low mental health under 20, we'll say that if you stay under 20 for too long, you're depressed. But what happens if you do a bit of work and you get to 25? Well, then you're not depressed anymore. So you're now not mentally ill. So therefore you're mentally well and you just get on with the rest of your life. But... And this is what happened to me. Like I, when I, 
you know, when I was in 2013, I achieved all those things. Yeah, great. But I was still probably down at 25 or 30, right? And so mentally, I would still class myself as unwell, but I'm not mentally ill. And so, you know, the job is how do we get someone from 25 to 30 up to 60, 70 to 80? And then also the big, you know, everyone knows we've got this massive mental health problem in this country and the first world. But the question is, like, if everyone started at 50, for example, how did all of these people get to 5, 10, 15? You know, they didn't just magically get there. They, they had a, you know, a succession of 50, 48, 46, 40. You know, they made, they made their way down there slowly. And so the whole point is that if we can get people understanding that they have mental fitness, you know, from the start, when you start becoming more mentally unfit, you can understand that and you can see it and you can then put things into place and start being mentally fitter again. And then your entire goal is to get as mentally fit as you can over your entire lifetime. And one of the caveats with this is that mental fitness, just like physical fitness, is basically like a travelator that's going the opposite way. If you stand on it, you're going to go backwards. If you walk slowly, you're going to stay in the same place. And then if you run, you'll actually end up going forward. Because if we just stop our physical, I mean, one of my favorite analogies is like, think of an Olympic swimmer, right? He wins a gold medal. That guy, that Olympic swimmer is pretty much like the pinnacle of physical health, right? Triangle shaped body, amazing cardiovascular fitness. And so he's won a gold medal. He's the best in the world. And therefore, he is now physically fit forever, right? No. Yeah. Of course he's not. Swimmers are the number one people when they retire, they just blow out and become giant. You know? And it's the same with mental health. Is that, you know, Buddhist monks don't graduate at 30 and then go, yay, we never have to meditate again. It doesn't work like that. If you do nothing, both your physical health and your mental health will deteriorate. And so we know that we should be going for a walk. We go do some exercise. We ride a bike, whatever, to keep our physical fitness at an at a average level that we're happy with. And yet none of us, or sorry, most of us are not doing those same things in order, equivalent things, to keep our mental health at a static position, let alone doing enough work to make it better. Yeah, I really, really enjoy kind of how you look at that and and how you think about it. And I think health is not the absence of disease, as you say, that you can be, yeah, you can be kind of at 25 as opposed to a 20 and and you're not clinically depressed anymore. Or you can have your blood sugars at a certain level and not quite be crossing over into clinically diabetic as well but does that mean you're well no it doesn't and again it kind of it comes back to to that that responsibility as well as that you've got the the responsibility not only for your physical health but also for your mental health to to push that forwards and push that push that along and you mentioned meditation is one of the best things that you've found to improve your mental fitness are there other stuff that you, you do on a regular basis that pushes you, that keeps you moving up that mental fitness travelator? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing is that, um, you know, there is no one answer to this. Um, you know, it's, 
there are, there are so many facets to mental wellness, mental fitness, um, that, that you can do whatever's right for you. Now, if you ask me to go running, I would tell you, I'd look you straight in your face and go, fuck off. I, I'm not running anywhere at any time. Um, if you asked me to go to the gym, you would get the same response. Not something I care about. Not something I want to do. I go body surfing most days of the week. And so therefore I'm like swimming and surfing and you're exerting all this energy. And that's what keeps me physically fit. And so I've found something that, that works for me. And then, you know, also I, I like to go for a walk. Um, you know, I'll play some tennis with someone. I'll play some golf with someone. You know, like I've got all of these things that make up my physical fitness. Same with your mental health. You've got to look at it holistically is that, you know, meditation is a great tool to be able to look inward and see what needs changing. And then once you have found what needs changing, then you need to actually change that. And so, you know, you may add a spiritual advisor to your list. You might add a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor. Another big thing is uh, for mental health, which carries over from physical health is diet making, you know, basically sugar and refined carbohydrates are shown to be the worst thing for depression and mental health. Um, basically long story short, it comes down to inflate inflation and uh, inflammation of the gut. Um, and so, you know, then you've got things like my social life. That's a really, really big one for me. Um, I am a social animal and I need to hang out with my friends on regular occasions and be able to have, you know, real in-depth, proper, beautiful conversations, not surface bullshit. Another thing for me is meeting new people. Like that's a real strong driver for me is to be able to go out and connect and meet and listen to new stories and tell new stories and in interact with new people. So, you know, that's a big one. Um, and so, I mean, this is the thing. There are literally hundreds of things that you could do to move yourself up the mental health continuum. The problem is that we're not aware enough to be identifying these things, participating in them, and actively using them to move ourselves up. And so, you know, if you're a listener out there to this podcast, hopefully that's one of the things you get out of today. You have mental health. It is on a continuum. You want it to be moving up, but in order to do that, you have to actively go find things that work for you to be able to make that happen. And I think like on that note that exploring your curiosity around the stuff is one of the best things that I've found and testing out a whole lot of different stuff as well. And not being afraid to kind of come back to something that maybe hasn't worked that well for you in the past because I've found for me at least kind of going through seasons that when I'm working on my mental health that something that didn't work for me like a year ago if I come back to it in a slightly different format it works really well for me now um, and one of the things that I was that I'm thinking of is kind of around journaling and about around writing. And I tried to, I tried to do some writing about a year ago and I think I managed like three or four sessions 
and just kind of fell by the wayside. But at the start of the year, a secret Santa bought me a something called the Daily Stoic Journal. Mm-hmm. So you sit down and you write for a couple of minutes and it's, it's a question that's posed to you and kind of along the lines of what's really important to you and kind of how do you respond in certain situations. So it's, it's the act of writing, it's the act of doing something, but it's framed in a slightly different way that's really working for me at the moment, whereas trying it, trying it a year ago uh, just by myself didn't work for me at that time. So, so exploring and putting, putting things in and pulling things out as you, as you need to and as seasons of life go through. And I mean, from a, from a physical perspective as well, like I used to run for physical fitness, but now I run still and some of it's for physical fitness, but predominantly it's for mental fitness because what I get out of, of going for a run is getting out in nature slowing the mind down a little bit in terms of kind of letting ideas come in and sort of having yeah. questions roll around in my head. It's but medicine. Also, yeah, it is. But also, especially if I go out for a hard run is trying to almost sharpen the ax of my mind in terms of dealing with hard stuff. On the weekend, I went out and ran up uh, Mount Kaukau in Wellington, which is a relatively steep hill. And Physically, it was hard, but mentally, it was much harder to uh, to tell myself to keep going and keep pushing through this. That actually, I was okay as I was doing it, and it was it was brain training as well as as body training. Your running thing just reminded me of a friend of mine, and he, you know, reasonably prominent New Zealander, and he snapped his Achilles, and you know, running was his main form of mental health right so it's all of those things that you said you know like uh let you think it's meditative you know gives you alone time you know all of these things and it was his main form of mental health he snapped his achilles and achilles is like you know the worst thing to do it's like six eight months of recovery or whatever and so what happened was he had his main mental fitness thing got taken out of his toolbox. And so guess what happened? Fucking free fall down that continuum because basically he had all his eggs in one basket. And that's one of the, one of the big things I try to get people to understand as well. It's like, you know, you can't just do one thing. You can't just have running that does that. You can't just have meditation that does that. You know, you've got to have this whole host of things like, Basically, you should be looking for percentage points in anything, anywhere to try and move you that one or two points up, right? And so the more things you have, the more little point you can get from different sources. And so I, I tend to see a lot of people who end up putting all their eggs in only one or two baskets and, uh, and it ends up biting them on the ass sometimes uh, if something goes wrong. Yeah, and running through some workouts at the moment from a dude called Ross Edgley, who's just swum around Great Britain, and he's got a kind of a, a workout that's called a general physical preparedness program. So it's a whole lot of different movements that you're that you're doing. And again, to kind of harken back to that fitness one, if you're just doing push-ups or if you're just doing bicep curls, then you get really strong at doing that shit. But everything else, nothing else kind of catches up with it as well. 
and if something happens that you can't, you can no longer do that, then you just start to, to become weak again. So again, I think as well as kind of general physical preparedness, it's, it's having that gentle, general mental preparedness as well for, for hard times. You mentioned replacing some of the kind of the more negative energies in your body with, with love. How do you think about love? Well, basically, uh, for an overview, every single choice in your entire life at all times is made up of two choices, love or fear. And so fear encompasses basically, you know, all of the negative stuff, all the anger, the resentment, the jealousy, the envy, the, you know, the fear. That's that. That's one end of the continuum. Then the other end of the continuum is love. And that's all the, the, like the joy and everything surrounded with that. And so the question is always, are you going to choose love or are you going to choose fear? And so when I look at myself poorly, when I'm, you know, afraid of making decisions or uncomfortable or whatever, it's like, I'm choosing the fear over and over again. And I did that for years. I chose fear and chose fear and chose fear. And so my question and to myself in all of my interactions is how can I choose love in this interaction? And, you know, it's not always easy. Um, Sometimes your baseline is fear. Uh, You know, as human animals, fight or flight, you know, we, we choose, you know, both of those fight and to flight and both of them are fear. But we don't, we don't have to be like that anymore. That was something that was built into us so we didn't get eaten by lions. And so, so love is just basically you know, all of the right choices that you should be making and the right choices for you and for everyone else around you. Yeah, that's a cool way to think about it. And it, like I think most people's kind of natural state, well, that, or the state that's developed is is that fear state, and it's it's kind of training ourselves out of that towards the love state in terms of kind of making those those choices every time. Because I think as as humans, you and me sitting here today, we're here because our ancestors were fearful that they stayed away from stuff that might kill them, and then they had kids, and those kids survived because they stayed away from stuff that might kill them. So that, that fearfulness has kind of been, been passed oh, yeah. down it's generation to generation. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's a, it's, it's a training perspective is that you get slowly better at choosing love compared to fear over time. Every time you, every time you make, make that choice. And this is going to sound bad, but, but training that love muscle is something that we need to do. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, we're never going to ever lose the the base fight or flight mechanism you know if we get attacked in the street we're still going to go into that fight or flight and we're going to run away or fight the guy off like that's that's just you know that's just the way we're always going to work but unfortunately because of what you said before we are negatively geared to be afraid of absolutely everything from the start and so we're, we're already starting at a disadvantage and so we really do have to put a lot of positive intention and training into that to get us back to even uh, an even playing field before we start even moving forward. But as I was saying earlier, this is the thing, like love is teachable, love is learnable, and love is growable. 
you just have to do that work. Now, I mean, I, I know this from personal uh, experience is that, you know, my ability to love for whatever reason was quite low. And I would love at 100% of my capacity, but my capacity wasn't massive. Whereas my wife would love at 100% of her capacity, but her capacity was giant. And therefore we had this massive disparity in the amount of love. We we're both giving 100%, but the volume was massively disproportionate between each other. And so that was something that she found hard to understand at the start. But I also then had to learn how to grow my volume of love. And again, that doesn't happen overnight. You can't just magically open up a floodgate and now you're the same. And so over the past seven years with her, I have been slowly growing my capacity through love. And interestingly, the way it works out is that you don't actually grow your outward capacity for love. You have to grow your inward capacity for love and then the outward capacity reflects that. So when you say your inward capacity for love, are you talking about loving yourself? Loving yourself. Yeah. 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 And, and this is it. Like, I mean, if you'd, if you'd talked to me, you know, seven years ago and said, do you love yourself? I'd be like, yeah, of course I do. Oh, good. Like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sweet. You know, I was, I was, you know, confident, probably even arrogant, you know, like absolutely I love myself. But when you get quiet and then you start really digging in, it turns out you're lying to yourself and you don't really love yourself because if you loved yourself, you wouldn't be getting angry at yourself for not achieving to the level that you wanted or to being able to do this or that or the other thing, you know? And so, you know, you wouldn't be sad because, you know, you just didn't live up to what you wanted to live up to. And so, you know, loving yourself again, what I said earlier, is just this, if you, if you work on the inside, everything on the outside falls into place. If you start loving yourself more, if you start learning to how to do it, then the relationships around you start getting better. Like you didn't actually start loving those other people more, but for some reason, the relationships just started getting better. You're like, mm. how is this even working? Well, it just, it just does because you love yourself more. And then when you love yourself more and you move yourself up that mental health continuum, then you know, your friendships get better. Your work relationships get better. You start getting offered better jobs. You start ending up making more money. You start ending up, you know, all of these things flow off the back of looking after yourself, increasing your own capacity for internal love. That's it. Something that I've just been thinking about as, you t as you've been talking about that, Jimmy, is, is ego as well and ego's role in this. And it almost seems that if we can try and reduce our ego as well, that increases our capacity to love. Yeah, absolutely. It was an interesting study that came out about two days ago that says Westerners who practice yoga and meditation actually have more of an ego than when they started. Yeah. Yeah, real interesting, eh? Fascinating. I wouldn't have thought that. 
Uh, no, of course not. The whole idea of yoga and meditation from an Eastern philosophy is to you know, reduce and release the ego. Yet they were finding that these, these first world people who were uh, in the studies, you know, once they were learning it and doing it, they, they felt superiority over the other people because they were working on themselves and the other people weren't, uh, which, is, which is really, really quite funny. That is, um, that's, that's interesting. It'd be like um, people that put out recycling versus people that don't feeling morally superior to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so they get an ego about that. Um, yeah. And so, and so, yeah, like absolutely, you know, reducing your ego in whatever way you can um, makes everything better. But I mean, like, I think the ego comes down to perspective for me. Mm -hmm. And when I start understanding more about myself, then I start understanding more about other people. And you realize that we're all the same and that we're all, you know, smart, but in different ways. And that everyone else has their pain and they're just projecting it and it's not about you. And so, you know, you start, you know, seeing all these things with proper perspective and then you start just going, Oh, I'm just me. Like I'm no better or worse than anyone else. Um, and, and so your ego starts to come down from that. Um, but yeah. And, and that, that definitely, I definitely used to think that I was better than a lot of people. I used to think that I was, I came up with better ideas or I was smarter or, you know, I was a bit of a dick in that way. And that would come across as arrogant maybe or, or whatever. But uh, the more I've let that go, obviously the better my life has become. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think I'm similar with that as well as that there were there definitely been times that I've been a, just, yeah, a real dick. Um, and I think a lot of it was, was wrapped up in, in the ego and, the dropping dropping of that and, and becoming more self-aware and there's still times that I'm sure that I am a dick and that I still have uh challenges with with ego as well but they're, they're much fewer and further between them than what they used to be and kind of having that increased self-awareness around sort of what's what's important to me and, and what is yeah what's what's going on within me has increased hopefully my my perspective of the the world around me and my ability to be empathetic to to other people and try and understand their situations a little bit more rather than just using a, a comparison approach of oh I'm better than you because of this and this and this rather than hey I'm I'm just different to yeah, you who gives, no better who gives a shit? Yeah. Well, this, this is the thing we're all running our own race at our own pace and so like it just doesn't matter i i quite often finish my talks with this and it's my favorite quote in the entire world and it's this you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything practically mm. everything is just completely unimportant and I think when you grasp that and you realize that this podcast is just so fucking unimportant in the grand scheme of things, you know, what I achieve and the, like we sum up, we sum up entire civilizations in one word, like Mesopotamians, Aztecs, Incas, like 
We know nothing about them. You can't tell me the name of a, of a, of a Aztec person. You know, like in the grand scheme of things of time and space, we are so insignificant. Everything we do is insignificant. And yet we put the most ridiculous importance on absolute bullshit. And so when you realize that you are completely insignificant and unimportant, it can either do two things for you. It can make you sad as hell because you're nothing, or it can make you the freest person on the fucking planet. Nothing that I do matters. Therefore, I can do anything. Mm, I like that. I like that. That's probably a good place to start to tie things off, actually, mate, uh, on, on that note. I've got some questions that I usually ask everyone just at the, at the end of the conversation. And the first one is, what was the last uncomfortable thing you did and how did you get through it? Uh, I don't know about the last, but the first thing that just popped to my mind is I have a sign that I made up it's called, I will talk to anybody about anything. And I take that sign and I go sit in public places and I sit there and I, and you know, people walk past and they look at me and they read the sign. I will talk to anyone about anything. And some people laugh, some people keep walking by and then some people talk to me. And I like talking to people. I, I, I like meeting new and interesting people. I like helping people. It still fucking scares me every time. It really does that no one will stop no one will talk to me people will laugh at me people will think i'm a dick i still have that and gotta one of the things is like i i there's i i i try to make sure i don't look religious in any way because <laughs> where i where where i live the jehovah's witness have a stand where they you know try and stop people and talk to them but i, I also think i'm like man like they are so brave like they they are literally trying to convert people to their religion and they, they get rejected 9 million times a day and they still do it. And I'm like, well, if they can get rejected 9 million times a day, I can sit there with my sign and try and help people. I, I've never thought of it like that, but that is, that is very good as well. What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the next... Actually, I do. I do know what the next thing is. My wife was giving me shit about it this morning. I'm going to ring up a friend and asked to borrow their four wheel drive. And I think it will put them out. And, but I need it for you know good reason. I need to move something. And I'm afraid of doing that. And I've always been afraid of asking people for help for anything, small or big. I always feel like I'm putting them out. And I'm always feeling like they won't want to help me. And then they'll just say no. And it's something that I'm still working on to this day. Even though I know the worst thing that they can say is, oh, no, nah, I'm busy or no, nah, I don't want to. Most likely they will help me. And yet I'm still afraid to ask for help. And that is something that I, you know, I talk about so often in so many places is that you know, the number one thing we need to be doing as humans is ask for help. You know, if you need help, I will help you. So why am I afraid of asking someone else for help? You know, we're so good at going, yeah, yeah, I'll help you do this, that, the other thing. And we're afraid to ask it ourselves. Um, and like I said, it's something I consistently tell people to do and yet I still find it uncomfortable to do it myself. And mm. so that's something that I'm still working on. Yeah, it's interesting. And like, I think everyone, everyone feels that way to some extent. But as, as you say, like when you get asked for help, when someone asks you to help them, 
like it makes you feel good that you can, you can go out and help someone else. Jimmy, do you have any strategies that you use when you're approaching uncomfortable situations? Yeah. I mean, like this is the thing is that you are not your thoughts. You know, what's stopping you do it, doing it, your thoughts. Like, you know, I mean, basically when I say you are not your thoughts, it's a, it's a, it's a mind fuck, but like, you know, what are you? You are the observer of your thoughts. What does that even mean? Like you are your soul, you know, but basically, you know, you're your gut instinct. And so, you know, when you feel like you should do something, then that is the right answer. When your brain then starts making up a whole bunch of bullshit, that's not the right answer. And so the number one thing stopping you doing something that is, you know, making you uncomfortable is your brain. And so you've got to override that brain and you've just got to go, I feel like I should do this. I feel like it's the right thing to do. So just fucking do it and then just do it. Nice. Mate, just about done, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to have a conversation with me today and talk about a whole range of things. Uh, but also I want to thank you for doing the work around uh, helping improve New Zealand and the world's mental fitness, delivering it in a way that people can understand how to do it and why they, why they need to do it rather than just thinking, oh, I'm, I don't have any diseases, therefore I'm healthy. So thank you so much for that, mate. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Jimmy, if people are interested in you, mate, and kind of the work you're doing, how can they find out more about you? Where can they go to do that? JimmyHunt.com. I answer all their questions. Sweet. And final question for you is, do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Uh, yeah, sure. I do. Real simple. Like, be quiet. Like, spend a period of each day. It can be a short period, but spend a period each day being quiet with no stimulation and see where it leads you. Mm. Jimmy Hunt, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. You are most welcome. There you have it team, I hope you enjoyed that one. I found it was a it was a really interesting conversation with Jimmy and his philosophies are definitely some that I share, especially along the lines of mental fitness and treating your, your mental well-being as fitness and something that you train as opposed to something that is just there. Couple of quick thank yous. Thank you, Jylan, as always, for your editing skills. Thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for his amazing theme music. Thank you guys for hanging in there and listening all the way through till the end. I'd love to hear what creative, awesome ideas you come up with as you take a, a little bit of silence for yourself and a little bit of quiet time. Once you've had that quiet time, ping us a message or tag us on, on the socials with, with the creative ideas that you've come up with from the quiet times. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with Jimmy and I today. 